Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us safely together this Sabbath morning. I pray for all of the rest of our church family, wherever they may be. We pray for physical safety, we pray for health, and we pray that our spirits might be strong and holding firmly to Jesus because we believe truly you are coming soon. And I pray, Lord, today as we open your word, help us to know how best to be ready to do our part to hasten that day. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You see the title on the screen? Well, it was on the screen. Nothing shall offend them. And we are going to begin by taking a look at Matthew chapter 24. This is actually the foundation, the premise of our study today. We're going to be looking at the signs of the times. And so first of all, we're going to look at, we're going to begin reading in verse 3. And we're going to look at a number of verses together and then talk about them. So verse 3 of Matthew chapter 24, I think we've all heard these words before, but let's review together. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Clearly, Jesus is being prompted with a question about the end of time and his second coming. Verse 4, and Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. And let's just skip down to verse 11 real briefly. It says there that many false prophets will arise and deceive many. So I want to just quickly take a look at the overview of what we just read. And I think a lot of these statements we've, we've seen before, we've heard about them in evangelistic series or Bible studies before. Wars and rumors of wars. Are we not always bombarded with the possibility of war in this day and age? Of course, there's always North Korea. Of course, we don't really know whether Kim Jong-un is alive or dead. We don't know what's going on. It seems like there's always some question and there's always some saber rattling and some threat of some nuclear warhead that they might have gotten access to. There's, we're always on the precipice, it seems, with North Korea. There's a conflict in China with India. There's a trade war between China and the U.S. And one thing that's quite specific is that if you can remember way back in January of 2020. You remember when there was a military strike upon uh, General Soleimani of the Iranian army. It was sort of headline news. You remember that? And there was all this talk. He was the leading general of uh, the Iranian army, and he was in Iraq, and the U.S. drone strike took him out. And everyone was saying, this is going to be World War III. We're going to get into war with Iran. Red alert, red alert. Well, fortunately, it ended up merely being a rumor of war. It never blew up into a full-scale war. But that seems like ancient history. That was like six months ago. Well, what happened since then? Well, nation shall rise against nation. What's interesting is that the word nation is actually derived, the, the Greek word is ethnos, the word from which we derive the word ethnicity. So Jesus says in the end times, ethnicity will rise against ethnicity. Do we not see racial tension today, particularly in our country? And of course, a lot of this was sparked, you know, the, the, the unrest underneath, the dissatisfaction has been in there for decades. 
But the spark that light this latest fire was the death of George Floyd, which happened on May 23, not that long ago. And how the world has changed. Our country has changed. Nation shall rise against nation. We read about pestilences. I don't think I need to talk about this, do I? COVID-19, we're all wearing masks now because of COVID-19. The worst pestilence in our lifetime and probably in over 100 years. And a lot of news articles, you can Google this if you don't believe me, World Health Organization and other international organizations are saying because of the economic lockdown and the transportation restrictions, we are entering a period of severe famine in great swaths of the world. And if you look up the term biblical proportion or famines of biblical proportion, the BBC, the Guardian, the CNN, I mean, all these news articles, they have been reporting on this. Famines, Jesus predicted, will happen before the end. What about earthquakes in diverse places or various places? Uh, some of you may know whom I speak, of whom I speak, but we have, I had some friends who got stuck in Salt Lake City. They were unable to leave the airport because the airport got shut down from an earthquake. And this was just in March 18, not too long ago. And then, of course, it's lost in all the hubbub with the news now, but there was a major earthquake in southern Mexico. It was a 7.4 on the Richter scale. That was just in June 23. So earthquakes continue to occur in various places. And then false prophets. That's another sign that we just read in Matthew 24. And just a couple weeks ago, this strikes close to home as far as Adventism goes, and also because we live in Tennessee. There was a guy named Jeff Pippinger over Father's Day weekend, June 21, 22. Actually, I have a picture of the article. You can see he took out a $14,000 ad in the Tennessean, largest newspaper here in Tennessee, basically giving a prophecy that on July 18, that's exactly one week from today, proponents of Islam is going to detonate a nuclear bomb in Nashville. And because of this, we're going to be entering World War III, instigated by Islam, and Donald Trump is going to become the last president of the United States, and we're going to enter into a period where the United Nations takes over the world, or something to that effect. And he, of course, being a former Seventh-day Adventist, he implicates the Adventist church for not preaching this message, and they're backslidden, and all of these things can be proven from Ellen White. Well, let's just say Jeff Pippinger has a complex, and, uh, he is not a true prophet, as we shall see once we pass July 18 next week, and um, we'll know that his prophecy did not come to pass. But all of this to say, all of these signs that we have seen, spoken of by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, of which he says these are just the beginning of sorrows, right? We've seen a lot of these things happening more recently. And when we think about the signs of the times, we need to remember that Jesus makes it clear. This is, these signs by themselves do not say that Jesus is imminently at the door. He says these are the beginning of sorrows. But the analogy is birth pains, contractions before a child is born. Jesus gives these signs and he says, look, these signs are going to happen more frequently with greater intensity. Just like the contractions before a child is born, it becomes closer together and more intense right up until the time of delivery. And what am I saying by listing off all of these signs? Well, guess what? Every single sign I just mentioned occurred in just the first half of 2020. Every single one of the things I just mentioned happened in the last six months. 
So are we seeing the signs of contraction becoming more frequent and in more greater intensity? Well, I think so. But that's actually not the focus of our study today. I want to focus on the next series of verses in Matthew 24. So let's go back there. Let's read verses 9 through 14. And this is really where I'm going to focus because I think we don't look at this as often as the first part that we just read. So Jesus continues in verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. So I'm going to outline these points that we just read in Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 through 14. What did Jesus just say? Just point by point. Number one, persecution is coming. I think we all know that. We've all heard it. But Jesus now then expounds and gives somewhat of a context as to what leads to the persecution. All right? It says, many will be offended. That's the key word there. Many will be offended, and as a result, they will betray and hate one another. And in the midst of this, false prophets will arise and will deceive many and further stoke this division. And lawlessness will abound. Lawlessness. In the Old King James, it talks about iniquity. And as iniquity abounds, the love of many will grow cold. Now, it's interesting that when we read verse 13 and 14, what context those verses follow. Because Jesus then says, those who endure to the end will be saved. Now, within context, what are these people enduring? Well, they're enduring what Jesus just talked about. Tribulation, being delivered up to be killed, hated, being betrayed, the love of many waxing cold, lawlessness abounding, people being offended at them. This is the context that Jesus is speaking about. And then verse 14, which is the part we usually skip to, and we say, this gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all the world as a witness. And we say, yes, that's the work. Let's go finish the work. We got to preach the gospel so Jesus can come. But Jesus says, hold on. Let me make sure you understand the context in which the gospel must be preached. You get the picture. Jesus is saying, for you to preach the gospel to the world, I must warn you that it's going to be difficult because people will hate you. There will be false prophets, like the one we just talked about, who will undermine your credibility. There will be people who are offended at what you stand for, what you believe, what you say, what you look like, perhaps. And then there will be lawlessness on top of that. And the love of many will wax cold. But nevertheless, Jesus says, endure and preach the gospel. That's our work. Matthew 24, 9 through 14. And it's interesting. I'll just interject this because we're going to come back to this later. The word endure that Jesus uses here, it means to remain under pressure, to be able to continue pressing forward even under great pressure. And sometimes that word is translated patience. Patience. So looking at this list or this outline of these passages, I think we can zero in on sort of a core issue that sort of 
triggers this cascade of events. And if we can just show the slide before we move on there, it says many will be offended. Many will be offended. It gives us this picture that we're going, at the end of time, there's going to be a scenario in which everyone is upset about everything. And as a result of being upset about everything, they do irrational things. And so I want to zero in on this idea about many will be offended. Is this being reflected in our society today? Well, we have uh, such a thing called outrage culture nowadays where it's become fashionable to be angry. In fact, it is virtuous now to be outraged at something. How do I know that someone is holy or someone is moral or someone is standing for justice? Just see what they're railing against, right? That's just sort of the cultural norm nowadays. It's become fashionable. I'm virtuous because I'm mad at something. I'll use this as an example. I think you'll understand what I'm getting at. Imagine a couple months ago, if I had told you that one of the biggest trigger words to get people upset at you is the word masks. Would you believe me? I mean, a lot of you know, Korean church, everyone wears a mask because they're all doctors, right? So probably in this congregation, it, you, you just understand, yeah, well, you wear masks because I don't want to get sick. But nowadays, you understand, you go on social media and you just type in the word mask and just duck for cover. Because everyone has an opinion on masks now, and everyone is offended. You're not wearing masks. I'm offended at you. You're wearing a mask. I'm offended at you. You understand, this is the climate in which something as benign as a mask has now symbolized, obviously it represents something far more, I understand that, but I'm just simply describing the mentality that society is in. And we can go down the list. Oh, don't even go into vaccines then that's like a nuclear you know, warhead about to be set off on your Facebook page. And then there's, oh, everybody's offended at the president. Oh, no, it's the other party. No, it's the mainstream media. Oh, I'm offended because we're locked down. No, I'm offended because we're not locked down long enough. You understand, every little thing now triggers someone. So the point is, many will be offended, Jesus said, and we're now in a position where we see it clearly. Even something very minute and seemingly harmless and innocuous, can blow up into the next greatest scandal. But that's not where it ends. We're leading now into a culture of censorship. Censor culture, where people say, because what you say and what you believe and what you stand for offends me, you must be silenced. You can't post your videos on YouTube anymore, or whatever the circumstances may be. Many will be offended. We're beginning to see a trend of what Jesus is talking about. Many will be offended, will betray one another and hate one another. The love of many waxing cold. We're seeing the trend of this happening in society because that's not where it ends. Not only is there censor culture, now there's a thing called cancel culture. And I don't even need to point out in the world because there have been Adventist preachers who have lost their jobs because of YouTube videos of them preaching the gospel. Some of you know of whom I speak, personal friends of mine. This is not something that's just happening out there in the world in some nondescript. It's affected some of our own. The idea that because we say something 
unpalatable, that's offensive to someone else, we must lose our jobs, our position, our credibility, our good honor, and all the rest. And it's getting to the point where it's not even what we say recently, like what I said on YouTube last week in a video that I posted. It's stuff that happened decades ago in a high school yearbook or some article I wrote when I was you know, an ignorant college student. Things like that can come back and causes people to be canceled. This is all an outgrowth of this issue of many being offended. And this is actually couched now within the term political correctness. And what is really political correctness? Political correctness, you know, in some ways, you know, you're trying not to be offensive, I understand that. But on the flip side, it's becoming a thing where it is merely the subjective moral standard of the day. Whatever the moral standard is of society that sort of blows in the wind, it might be one thing today, another thing next week, certainly by next year it's going to be something else. Political correctness is sort of the euphemistic term over this new moral standard in society. And there's a problem because you're thinking, well, there are legitimate things to be upset about, aren't there? Well, yes, of course. The reality is, as we approach the end of time and the, the, the restraining spirit of God is being let loose and the four winds begin to blow, lawlessness and iniquity abounding, the love of many waxing cold, all of these things occurring, there's going to be greater sin and greater injustices that we as Christians ought to be upset about. But here's the problem. When we're upset about everything, we're upset about nothing. Because when everyone is upset about everything, there becomes this false moral equivalency over everything that everyone's shouting about. I'll give you an example. We mentioned masks. I'm using that because I think it's a safe one for me to use in this audience. Everyone has an opinion on masks. It's what everyone's shouting right now at volume 10, right, on their Facebook page. But I was born in Hong Kong. And some of you may have heard, some of you may not have heard, that recently there has been some severe legal restrictions on the city-state of Hong Kong. A national security law from the People's Republic of China that has violated a lot of the principles, the one nation, two state, freedom of you know, democracy and, and, and freedom of press and freedom of speech now is largely curtailed. Of course, the law is nebulous enough that nobody fully understands the consequences, but most commentators who are looking in see a severe cause for concern about freedoms in Hong Kong. I know people will probably get upset at this too, but to me, whether or not someone wears a mask and the freedom of speech of a city of millions of people, to me, they are not morally equivalent. But because we're shouting at everything, to us, we lose the gravity, we lose the relative moral weight of issues that are occurring. And I understand, understand I'm not degrading other issues. I'm sure there are many other instances of injustice and things that could certainly be legitimate. I'm using that just as one example, just one example of what happens when we have this culture of cons constantly being upset about everything. Because when we're offended about everything, we lose the capacity to be offended about anything. And we're also now in a day and age, I've been alluding to this, where the social media amplifies everything. So we're not just angry, we're angry 24-7. I mean, whenever I go on Facebook now, afterwards I feel like I need to take a bath. 
Seriously. Uh, so probably a good idea to stay off of social media as much as you can nowadays. But you might be thinking, well, what about, what about that? Actually, before, before we go there, I, I found this statement this week when I was reading uh, in my devotions. This is an interesting statement in light of the political correctness. This is uh, Help in Daily Living, I think page 32. Christianity will make a man a gentleman. Christ was courteous even to his persecutors, and his true followers will manifest the same spirit. The gospel does not encourage the formal politeness current with the world. Notice that. We can insert the word political correctness there, but the courtesy that springs from real kindness of heart. I love the balance of the spirit of prophecy because Ellen White here, she doesn't merely say we need to denounce political correctness and we need to, you know, stand up for free speech and pound our fists and, and shout and protest. She's not saying that. She says no. She's saying you need to be courteous like Jesus was courteous. Be polite and be a gentleman like he was. Don't just become formal about it in the way that society dictates. Be genuinely polite. Be genuinely loving. Be genuinely charitable in how you deal with other people. Amen? That's what Jesus wants us to be like. All right, so that transitions to the next point. And that is some of us, we are thinking, well, you know, yeah, everyone's being offended, but doesn't Jesus say for us to avoid offending other people? In fact, actually, he does. Let's take a look at this statement here. This is uh, Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So speaking specifically of evangelism, Jesus says, you need to be smart. You need to plan. You need to be cunning and, and strategic like a serpent, but be harmless as doves. Be as loving and charitable. Come as close to the people as possible. Be as winsome and loving and lovable as you can possibly be for the sake of the gospel. And then the next statement here, Romans chapter 12, verse 18, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. That's the principle. For Christians, we ought to come as close as possible, to avoid offense as, as much as possible, to not create conflict where it can be avoided. And if it be possible, let us leave, live peaceably with all men. That's what Jesus says. That's what Paul says in Romans. However, However, we must remember that avoiding offense is not the end goal for the Christian. How often we can, we can rationalize. Oh, I don't want to share my faith. I don't want to give literature to that person. I don't want to invite that person to church. I don't want to tell them that I'm a Christian because I might offend them. You ever think that? I think that. It's, it's like the first gut instinct when it comes to sharing the gospel. Oh, but I don't want to offend them. Well, look what Jesus says. Okay? Jesus actually says this in Matthew 10, 34. The same Jesus that says, be as harmless as doves, he also says this, think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace but a sword. Because Jesus understands that when we preach the truth as it is in Jesus, we can't help but offend some people. Because the truth, you know, the darkness comprehendeth not the light. That's the fact. If people are living in sin and we come with the light of the gospel to dispel their sin, they're going to hate us. And let's take a look at this list real quickly. Cain was offended by Abel. Jezebel was offended by Elijah. Herodias was offended by John the Baptist. The princes of Medo-Persia were offended by Daniel. And the Pharisees were offended by Jesus. We know all of these stories. And in each of these cases, what do we see? They were offended. They persecuted the saints. And in the end, they either attempted to, and in some cases successfully, 
killed the saints. This is exactly what's going to take place again at the end of time. That's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 24. So the point is, we are to preach the gospel with clarity, but with charity. And when we do so, we need to recognize someone is still going to be offended. And even if they are offended, that is not our problem in that case if, in the Spirit of Christ, we had done our part to present it in a loving way. So try not to offend others, but don't make it our end goal because our mission ultimately is Matthew 24, 14, to preach the gospel to the world. All right, so now, is there a remedy to this seemingly intractable problem? Well, we've got the gospel, and the gospel is going to offend some people. And we see that the world right now is in a perpetual state of being offended. What are we going to do? Are we just going to talk to, are we talking to a brick wall? Are we just walking into like, you know, the chainsaw? Like, what's, what's the solution? What is God's remedy? Well, this is our scripture reading for the day, and I like how it's stated in the old King James. It says, uh, this is Psalm 119, 165. Great peace have they which love thy law. And what does it say? Nothing shall offend them. Can you say amen to that? You have no idea how much I've claimed this promise. It's like scrolling through Facebook. Great peace have they that love thy law. Nothing nothing shall offend them. (laughs) That's kind of the feeling you get sometimes when you read some of the stuff that's being spouted. But the point is this. The law of God, the love of the law of God somehow can neutralize this feeling, this, this tendency to be offended and be upset about everything. Well, how can that be? How can this be? And how can this be looking at it from both sides? One side is how can we be in a position of having such peace in our hearts to not become easily offended by everything? And then on the other hand, what about society? Is there any hope for society? Well, how can the law of God help? So I'm going to, for the remainder of our time together, we're going to look at three reasons, three reasons how or why the law of God gives such great peace that we shall not be offended. So the first point here is that the law is based on selfless love. The law of God is based on selfless love. Galatians 5.14 says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, Thou shalt love the neighbor as thyself. We all know the golden rule. In Galatians, I was merely quoting what Jesus said in Matthew, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But Jesus himself was just quoting from Moses in the Old Testament. It's all throughout Scripture. It's the foundation of the Christian religion. Love to God, love to man. But Matthew 5, Jesus takes it one step further. Jesus says, You have heard that you shall love those who do good to you? No, I tell you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those that hate you and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus says loving your neighbor is not just loving those people who do nice things to you, but those who don't. In fact, those who hate you. And it is terribly difficult to be offended at the enemy whom you have chosen by the grace of God to love. Jesus tells a story illustrating this point in the Good Samaritan. The lawyer comes to him, Master, who is our neighbor? Thinking to entrap him, right? And Jesus tells this story. And you've got to understand, the story of the Good Samaritan is offensive on so many levels to his audience. 
I mean, he was, ta- he was putting his thumb right on the racial tension of the day. So not only does he tell a story about the racial inequities, you know, that talks about, you know, Jew and Samaritan, he makes the Samaritan the hero in the story. <gasps> How dare you? And then Jesus, within the story itself, illustrates how the Samaritan does what is right even though he knew that it could lead to severe offense. He knew that the person who who he's helping could turn around and sue him in the court of law or cause some other harm to him. He knew that. But nevertheless, the story shows us, Jesus is telling us, love your enemies. That's what it looks like, the Good Samaritan, loving his enemy. That's what it means to follow the law of God. And if the Christian believer today lives in accordance to the spirit of the Good Samaritan, the the spirit of the law, love to God and love to man, can you understand now how great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them? That's the picture that we see. Uh, Because the law is based on selfless love. So let's go to point number two. This one will take a little bit of explanation. The law is a moral basis for society. We live in a republic where the government derives its power from the consent of the governed. You understand what, what, what I mean when I say that? We elect our officials. They work for us. We don't work for them. However, self-government, which is a type of government that the United States is built upon, requires a morally and virtuous people. Meaning, the government cannot institute or cannot inject morality into the population. The government simply reflects the morality and the virtue that's already in existence in the population. That by nature is what self-government means. And so here, we understand that moral education occurs primarily in the home and in the church, and to a lesser degree, in the school. That's where people, children, that's where we were taught what is right and wrong. Our parents teach us in the home. We learn about it in the church. And then particularly, if we went to church school, it is taught to us in school. But here's the problem. In Western society, morality, as well as all of these Institutions of the home, the church, and the school have been eroded in recent history. And in its place has been a secular philosophy and a secular uh, way of thinking, a, a series of morals that is no longer based on the timeless law of God. And so what happens? This is actually what we're seeing, what, what's actually sparking all of this outrage and all of this offense is that there is no moral standard anymore. And people are offended because their moral standard, internally, is what's driving them to find fault in what other people say, do, or whatever, what have you. But it's difficult for society to actually modulate this because there is no longer any objective standard. Every man is doing that which is right in their own eyes. And a lot of this is because we have moved away as a society from the law of God being the moral basis of Society Now, in the spirit of, in the spirit of uh, Independence Day, which we just celebrated last week, I want to share with you a few statements from founding fathers of the United States. 
All right, this is George Washington. He says, virtue or morality is a necessary spring of popular government. And he also says, human rights can only be assured among a virtuous people. Benjamin Franklin says, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. James Madison says, to suppose that any form of government will secure liberty or happiness without any virtue in the people is a chimerical or imaginary idea. And the most famous statement, I think, that of this effect is from John Adams. He says, we have no government armed with power, capable of contending with human passions, unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge, or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was, on, was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Notice the U.S. founding fathers make it very clear that the Constitution and the U.S. government is not there to enforce morality in, in the terms of like, injecting it into the population. It requires that from the population because the government rests on the people. The people is what gives the power the consent of the governed is what gives power to the government. And so what happens when society decides to untether itself from an objective moral standard like God's law? Well, we don't have to look, uh, we don't have to guess, because we actually have an example in history. We have an example of a period in history where there was a nation, the only nation in the history of mankind who through its legislative bodies officially made a decree that we don't need God anymore. It was atheistic France during the French Revolution. And this is what we read in the Book of Great Controversy, page 282. This is what was occurring in the time of the French Revolution. After a period of jettisoning the Bible, the saints, the law of God, they kicked all of these things out of their country, and this is the result. At the opening of the revolution, by concession of the king, the people were granted a representation exceeding that of the nobles and the clergy combined. So that was a ruling class, and now the population now has been given power. Thus, the balance of power was in their hands, but they were not prepared to use it with wisdom and moderation. What does it mean, wisdom and moderation? That's simply another way of saying virtue and morality. Wisdom is knowing the difference between right and wrong. And, and moderation is temperance or self-control, which is a virtue. The people in France, the population of France, did not have that moral fiber that was grounded in the moral law. So eager to redress the wrongs they had suffered, they determined to undertake the reconstruction of society. And if you listen carefully, you'll hear echoes of these sentiments today. French Revolution is echoing today. Let's take a look at the next statement. Uh, actually, it's the same paragraph, continuing, same page. An outraged populace. Notice, it was a population that was consumed with being offended, of being angry, being outraged at their injustice that they, they witnessed. It says, whose minds were filled with bitter and long-treasured memories of wrong, resolved to revolutionize the state of misery that had grown unbearable and to avenge themselves upon those whom they regarded as the authors of their sufferings. The oppressed wrought out the lesson they had learned under tyranny and became the oppressors of those who had oppressed them. And this launched France into a period called the Reign of Terror. 
in which there were blood in the streets, the guillotine were chopping heads off all day long, there was anarchy and rioting. This was the result of people discarding the law of God. When morality, society no longer was anchored on the timeless principles of the word of God and his law, and we said, we don't need that anymore. We got human reason. France, they deified reason to the point where they worshiped the goddess of reason. They said, we don't need God anymore. We're fine the way we are. And that was the result. An attempt to revolutionize, reconstruct society, tear everything down, kill everyone who disagrees with us because we're so angry. And why are you angry? Because I'm angry. Well, why are you angry? Because I'm mad. Well, why are you mad? I just am. Because they're no longer based on a timeless, extrinsic, eternal moral standard. Now, I want to contrast this with what happened in America. Because the United States of America was founded on different principles. In Great Controversy, page 296, talking about the early pilgrim fathers uh, that came to this country, notice how it's described. The Bible was held as the foundation of faith, the source of wisdom, and the charter of liberty. Its principles were diligently taught in the home, in the school, and in the church. The three institutions we talked about being eroded earlier. And notice carefully, it wasn't enforced by the state. The state did not mandate a religion. It did not mandate uh, any type of religious exercise. It was all within society, in the fabric of our daily life, our homes, our families, the school and the church. And its fruits were manifest in thrift, intelligence, purity, and temperance. Those are all virtues I think we universally believe should be inculcated in a population. One might be for years a dweller in a Puritan settlement and not see a drunkard or hear an oath or meet a beggar. It was demonstrated that the principles of the Bible are the surest safeguards of national greatness. That boldest sentence right there is exactly what I'm saying at the top. The law of God is the moral basis for society. The feeble and isolated colonies grew to a confederation of powerful states, and the world marked with wonder the peace and prosperity of a church without a pope and a state without a king. That's the testimony of the United States, a a, a nation that was raised up with the principles of a population that had a moral fiber to it based on the Bible. So what have we read, or what have we learned so far? We learn that history shows us that political answers alone will never suffice. The solution is the law of God being written in our hearts and in our minds. It also shows us that the state should never be allowed to dictate individual conscience. Morality and virtue is the responsibility of the home and of the church. The church and state must remain separate. But the church must do its part to educate the people in what it means to live a moral life as according to the Bible. The principles of morality must permeate the fabric of society which undergirds the government of the people. This is how the law, how they who love the law, will have great peace and nothing shall offend them. It's because they will have a moral objective standard by which to determine what is right and what is wrong. So moving ahead now, point number three. The third reason why the law of God can give us hope. The law gives assurance of a righteous judge. What do I mean by that? 
Because there's a moral law, that means there's a moral law giver. And if there's a moral law giver, that means the immoral will be held to account. That means true justice will ultimately prevail one day. That means I don't have to take it into my own hands to exact the justice that I believe I am due right now. So even if we can't solve all of the world's problems, even if injustice still exists when I exit the world, we can know, we can have the assurance that God will make it right someday. And he will make it right eternally, meaning it will never revert back to injustice. So a couple passages of scripture I want to share with you. Psalm 119, 164. This verse is interesting because it is exactly one verse before our scripture reading. Great peace have they which love thy law. Well, right before that, this is what the psalmist writes. Seven times a day do I praise thee because of thy righteous judgments. The law of God gives us the promise of God's righteous judgment. Psalm 96, 10. Say among the heathen that the, that the Lord reigneth the world also shall be established, that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. And here's one of my favorites, Romans 12, 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. I do not need to be worried about gaining vengeance, seeking retribution for wrongs that have been done against me, because there is a God in heaven who will do it for me and his righteous judgment is right every time and he will never miss a case and when he says something right it will be right forever and when we have that understanding no wonder the psalmist can say great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them so what does it say here great peace have they which love thy law why because the law is based on selfless love and also the, because the law is a moral basis for society and because the law gives assurance of a righteous judge and that's why nothing shall offend them now i want to tie this back into matthew chapter 24 as we get ready to wrap this up remember we talked about the mission right people will be offended it will lead to persecution it will lead to lawlessness there will be iniquity you know, we see all of these things, and the mission is the gospel still must go to the world despite that state of affairs. And so the lesson we ought to draw from this are several fold. Number one, we ought to remember not to become easily distracted by becoming easily offended. Even though the culture around us is outraged at everything, may we exhibit the peace that the Christian can have when we are abiding in Jesus. But then the next point is we ought to avoid offending others as far as possible, but nevertheless not allow that to shut down our witness. We must preach the truth, but still be willing to stand for the right, though the heavens fall. So we ought to keep the law and trust in the lawgiver because he will ultimately grant us justice. So Matthew 24, 13 and 14, But he that endure unto the end, the same shall be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Notice this is the mission statement that we have been, you know, sort of mining and talking about, reflecting on this morning. But notice it's all in future tense. It's all in future tense. He that shall endure. He shall be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached. And then shall the end come. It's all future tense. But this passage has a sister passage in Revelation chapter 14. 
And this is our last statement for the day, but I want to show you this. Revelation chapter 14, the three angels' messages. We're going to look at the very beginning, verse 6 and verse 12. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. All of a sudden, we're talking in present tense now. The gospel is being preached to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people now, at the time of the three angels. And at the end of the three angels' messages, look how God's people are described. Here is the patience of the saints. Well, guess what? The word patience there, same Greek word, same root Greek word, as he that endures unto the end. So Jesus says, they that shall endure, in Revelation 14, Jesus says, here are they who do endure. Or here is the patience of the saints. It's present tense now. The people are here. And how are they described further? Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. If I can put it this way, those who endure unto the end, the saints, they keep the commandments of God, meaning they love the law of God. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. And what is the faith of Jesus? The faith of Jesus is being nailed to a cross and saying, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, committing his case to the righteous judge, and at the same time, not being offended at those who are crucifying him, but saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Those who preach the three angels' messages with power at the end of time, they will endure unto the end. They will endure the persecution, being offended, those being betraying them and hating them. But how? How? They can have peace because they keep the law of God. Great peace have they which love thy law. And they have the faith of Jesus. And because they have the faith of Jesus, nothing shall offend them. So today, Jesus tells us, he who endures unto the end, the same shall be saved. This gospel will be preached for a witness unto all nations. And he says, here is the patience of the saints. He will have a group of people who will be faithful unto the end. He will have a group of people who will not be offended by every latest thing that pops up on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. He will have a group of people who will be laser-focused on accomplishing the mission of taking the gospel to the world for a witness, regardless of the cost, regardless of the consequence. The simple question is, is that going to be you? And is that going to be me? So how many of us today want to say, Lord, I want to have that peace in my heart? Lord, give me that love for your law that nothing may offend me so I can accomplish the work you've called me to do. God bless you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your law that's based in love. We thank you for Jesus, who is the living demonstration of that law being lived out in flesh and blood. And Lord, no one was mistreated as much as him. And so may we look to him. May we have the faith of Jesus as we interact with the world around us, a world that is upset, a world that is unhinged, a world that is hurting and broken. May we speak truth with love, with charity, but with clarity. And truly, Lord, may we not lose heart that we might accomplish your work and your mission despite the, forbidding, for the foreboding circumstances and that we will be faithful until you come. Bless us today, the remainder of this Sabbath, and the week ahead, and may we 
ever remember, great peace have they which love thy law. Nothing shall offend them. Grant this promise to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.